to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks. Thanks for joining us for yet another adventure. Today, we're heading south, nearly to Mexico south, and talking about a place that by name put fear in men and inspired countless books and movies. Last year on our wedding birthday trip, Gross. <laughs> uh, we visited the Yuma Territorial Prison. The town of Yuma is located in the southwest corner of Arizona next to Mexico and California. The Territorial Prison sits along the Colorado River and provides for some really spectacular views. Mm-hmm. Prior to dams being built along the Colorado River, it was once over half a mile wide in the area. The water flowed quickly during this time, and it also provided security for the prison. Trying to cross that river was probably not an easy feat. Yeah, not a good choice. Well, in 1868, the Territorial Legislature agreed that Arizona needed a prison and it was to be built near Phoenix. A bill was passed, but no money was set aside for the project, so a prison was never built. They met again in 1875, so seven years later, to readdress the need for a prison. Two men representing Yuma, being Jose Maria and R.B. Kelly. R. Kelly? No, not that R. Kelly. Is he related, do you think? They might be, very distantly. Well, R.B. Kelly and Jose Maria... Uh, was able to amend the bill, changing the location of the prison from Phoenix to Yuma. But no one caught the change until the bill was signed. How sneaky. (laughs) Yeah, scandal. (laughs) The land for the prison was donated by the village of Yuma. $25,000 was set aside for the building. Which was just over 673000 bucks in today's money. Which is not a lot. Not enough to build a wall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't enough money today, and it was not enough money back then. So the men that were building it were forced to use whatever materials they had on site. Which it can't be much out in the middle of the desert. Yes. You can't build this out of cactus. (laughs) Uh, The prisoners were also used to help build the building, so that helped cut down on the cost. Labor, yep, free labor. Yep. And on July 1st, 1876, seven convicts were transported up to Prison Hill, where they were to spend the remaining time out in the Yuma prison. All the water for the prison came from the Colorado River. Inmates dug several tunnels at the base of the hill for the water to run into them. From there, water was pumped into a large 50,000-gallon stone water tank that was located next to the entrance of the prison. By 1882, they needed more water, so the tank was expanded to 80,000 gallons. The tank was also built by the inmates. A platform was then built on top of the tank to help reduce evaporation. Again, southern Arizona Mm -hmm. desert. Uh, They then added a roof and started using it as the guard tower. Brilliant. Yeah, very. By 1885, the prison had a kitchen, photo gallery, bakery, and bathhouse all built by the inmates. They also had a generator installed that provided the prison with electricity In 1893, an agreement was made with the town that the prison would supply them with power after 9 o'clock. In return, the town would pump water into the prison tank. The prison had more modern amenities than the town folk had. They had flushing toilets, running water, large fans to move the hot air out, and even a library. Sounds swanky in comparison. (laughs) Still don't think I'd want to be there for very long. No. (laughs) 
Well, the prison had a board fence around it until 1880 when a large adobe wall was built. It was 18 feet high and 8 feet thick at the bottom. Five foot thick at the top, so a nice taper. Mm-hmm. So it was wide enough that the guards could walk around the wall and watch the prisoners. Like we mentioned before, there wasn't enough money set aside to properly build the prison. Therefore, they had an adobe yard where the men would construct bricks to be used. They would also sell the bricks to the city to get more money for the prison. Pretty smart. Yeah. This, however, was a backbreaking and horrible work. The men would have to stand out in the hot sun with little water and just a few breaks. A lot of men would pass out during the summer from heat exhaustion. Yeah, that's probably the one job you wouldn't want in the prison. <laughs> no, it's like put me in solitary in that dark cell <laughs> yeah. out of the sunlight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Prisoners would be brought up to Prison Hill and escorted to the Sally Port, which was the only way in or out of the prison. At both ends of the opening were two large iron gates. The doors are far enough apart that a wagon could come inside and the door could close around it, locking them inside. Yeah, so if you need to picture this, the outer gates are opened, the wagon would come in, they close and lock the outer gates, and then they would open the inner gates to allow you through. So it's a secure passage all the way through. Yeah. Well, they probably uh, would then be able to go through like the wagons to make sure, you know, prisoners aren't trying to escape out of the wagon with a load of whatever. Mm -hmm, No smuggling and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Guard towers were also placed at the corners of the wall, allowing them to watch over the prisoners as Mm -hmm. well. Once they entered the prison, they were issued a number. Vitals were taken. Their hair was shaved, probably to prevent from bugs, huh? Yeah. And then they also got their picture taken. And inside the museum is the famous mirror that they would use to take the prisoner's picture. Yeah, their mug shots. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, we've got pictures in there playing with it, and you kind of shoulder up to it. It's got a cutout, so it, your shoulder sticks underneath of it, and your face is right next to the mirror. That way you look slightly away, and the one picture would capture both sides of your face, basically. Yeah. Yeah, they're kind of fun. We can put the picture of me up on there if we want. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yep. Got them. They were then issued a prison outfit that was usually gray and black stripes. At one point, they did use yellow stripes. I imagine they would fade out pretty quick out working in the sun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were allowed to have a hat, only two pairs of underwear, kind of gross. A little bit. Two handkerchiefs, two towels, one pair of pants, two pairs of socks, and one pair of boots. They were allowed to keep a toothbrush, two combs, and a toothpick. Don't chew on that toothpick. You only get one. <laughs> yeah. And they were also allowed pictures, books, tobacco, and bedding. Just very minimal things they had. Right. Well, the prisoners made their own shoes, their own uniforms, underwear, mattresses, hats, and all the furniture. Not only did they make clothing for themselves, but they also made clothing for the insane asylum in Phoenix. Each inmate was assigned daily work details, either in the clothing or shoe shop, the blacksmith shop, the mattress factory, the kitchen, the grounds, the rock quarry, the adobe yard, the wood yard, or on a prison construction detail. For their hard work, they were allowed to earn time off their sentence called good time. The prison even had a 2,100-acre farm, but it was never successful. (laughs) Uh, You're going to grow cactus out there. Yeah, it's (laughs) the middle of the desert. (laughs) Yeah, cactus takes a long time to grow. All the men would have to form a bucket brigade just to bring water from the river up to the farm. 
So that's going to take half the prison to start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the men worked eight hours a day except for Sunday. In the free time, they were allowed to make wood and leather crafts to sell to the townsfolk. One half of the money was given to the men. The other half was turned over to the Arizona Territorial Government. Making more money, right? Taxes. They were taxed. 50%. I feel yeah. like it's pretty close. Throughout the prison's operation, 3,040 men and 29 women were incarcerated in the prison. William Hall was the first person to come to the prison, and he was given number one. Number one. He is number one. Yep. He was already incarcerated in the Yuma County Jail and was helping build the prison, so he was pretty familiar with it by the time he moved up there. Mm. William was found guilty of second-degree murder and was serving a life sentence. After three years, he received a pardon, but made two more appearances at the prison, giving him the number 414 and 581. Looks like William may have learned his lesson after the last one, or maybe he moved out of state. I don't know. He was murdered. <laughs> yeah, that too. Who knows, or incarcerated somewhere else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, by November of 1878, the prison was accepting female prisoners. The first woman to enter the prison was Lizzie Gallagher, and she was given number 26. So not too long after starting this whole business, yeah. we got a woman. Well, Lizzie was only 20 years old and was charged with manslaughter for stabbing and killing Private James Moriarty from Camp Grant. The two of them were at a dance hall when she stabbed him, leading us to believe that she may have been a working girl. With a temper. Yeah. <laughs> the prison was not set up for women, and they did not know what to do with her when she arrived, so she was placed in solitary confinement. Yeah, go in the hole. <laughs> she was sentenced to one year and three months, but was released after 42 days. A month and a half for murdering a soldier. Yes. <laughs> we don't know what to do with you, so we're just going to let you leave. Yeah. That's wild. What was her sentence? It was... Uh, manslaughter, wasn't it? Yeah, manslaughter. For how long was it, though? Um, It was for... Sentenced to a year and three months. So her sentence was only 15 months for this murder. And she served 42 days. <laughs> wild. Well, the main cell block was built in 1883. There were 34 cells in the cell house. Each was 7 by 9 and 13 foot high. 7 foot by 9 foot. This is like a really big walk-in closet. Yeah. I mean, how tall are you? Six one? Six foot. Six, six foot. Even, yeah. So it's just a foot wider than, than you I are. Than I am tall. Yeah. yeah. Well, the cells housed six inmates inside this walk-in closet with two still bunk beds that had three beds each, so three on each side. Yeah. The bunks were converted to metal in 1901 due to a bed bug infestation. So before that, they would have been wood. Yeah. And the bottom bunk mm -hmm. is like inches from the ground. <laughs> yeah. Perfect place for a rattlesnake to go and get out of the sun. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and we joked about it like, I don't know what bunk I would want if I got sentenced to be in there. Yeah. The bottom one may be cooler, but you're closer to the elements where the tops, you know, you're climbing up all these stairs to get up or ladder to get up there. And I don't know. Yeah, It'd be hard to know. fall off that top bunk is kind of a drop. Yeah. <laughs> You've got four or five other guys farting away in their sleep in there. Yeah. <laughs> guessing you out. However, these were open on the ends. Both ends yeah. of it was open. It wasn't like a closed room with just the front entrance open. Well, the sidewall ones were 
closed. It was the center row that had an opening yeah. at each end. So, yeah, crazy. Yeah, you would want the center cells to have airflow through. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, there was no bathroom or water, just a bucket in the corner of the cell. The bucket was emptied every morning. Six people shitting and pissing inside this bucket. <laughs> each bucket, each cell right next to each other. Yes. The stench. My Lord. And the heat. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are a few of the cells left for you to wander around and explore inside. They let you into a couple of them out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's barely enough room for you to stand and get dressed alone, let alone if there were five other men in the room with you. Yeah. Marley doesn't like this story. You can hear her flapping away. <laughs> well, the main cell block was built to hold 204 prisoners. Sometimes they would have 240 prisoners inside, and they would allow the more trusted prisoners to sleep in the hallways. Today, when you visit, there is no ceiling, but back then it was all enclosed with a roof, and it even had electricity in there. In 1902, a hospital was built on the top of the main cell block that contained a pharmacy, a doctor's office, an operating room, a bathroom with flushing toilets, and a consumptive ward. And this was actually the first hospital in Yuma. Mm-hmm. I kind of wonder, too, if um, the town folk, if something happened to them, if they would bring them to the Yuma prison to see the doctor there. There's like, a good it, chance of it, yeah. That'd be kind of funny, you know. Unless he was making house calls from there and that was just his office, hard to say. Yeah, that's true. Well, with more women arriving at the prison, they had to figure out just what to do with them. In 1891, the prisoners built a section of the prison to house the women. By this time, they already had three female inmates. Three dedicated cells for the gals were excavated on the west side of the south bank. It also included a 30-foot by 30-foot private yard. That's plenty of room for three gals to (laughs) avoid each other until they start doing that cycling thing. (laughs) You need to keep them separated or they're going to be at each other's throats. Well, the women were separated from the men with a high fence that had wire around it. There was to be no contact between the men and the women prisoners. And if they were caught, they would be sent to solitary confinement. Not together. In 1923, the railroad destroyed a section of the prison ground on the west side, and therefore you can no longer see the women's section of the prison. Yeah, it kind of sucks. The Yuma prison was at times referred to as the hellhole due to the hot 120-degree weather in the summer and the cold temperatures in the winter. In 1894, they added the dark cell that was dug out in the south wall, and this was used for solitary confinement and was definitely a hellhole, mm-hmm. I feel like. A prisoner that was placed in the dark hole would be led down a narrow passageway to the cell. It was 10 by 10. There was no light, no window, so they would be in complete darkness. There was a small vent hole in the ceiling that when the sun was directly overhead, a small bit of light would seep in. Just a pinhole. Yep. In the center mounted on the floor was a ring and the prisoners were chained to the floor. There was no bathroom, not even a bucket, no bed to lay down on, and no blankets. The prisoners were not let out for work duty. They did not receive mail. And the only contact from the outside world was when a guard would come in once a day to bring them a small loaf of bread and some water. Not a place you want to be. No. Well, at times, snakes and scorpions would make it into the dark hole, and it soon got the nickname the Snake Den. 
Some prisoners claimed that the guards would put the poisonous creatures in the cell with them, but that was never confirmed. Yeah, uh, like they're going to come out and say they did that, yeah, right? Yeah, like, oh, yeah, I threw a rattlesnake <laughs> in there with them and yeah. a couple scorpions. It's fine. Well, and they said that they were even, like, maybe dropping them down the vent hole. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, a prisoner was allowed to be in there for a maximum of 10 days, and once let out, they were never the same. Some of them came out insane and were then placed in a five-foot by four-foot cell. Not enough room for me to stretch out, maybe diagonally, <laughs> until they were able to calm down. <laughs> yeah. That, that'll help you calm down. I know you were in a much bigger cell, so now we're going to place you in a smaller one so that you can calm down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we walked into the dark cell, and it was an extremely heavy and scary feeling going inside there for me. I don't know about you. Yeah, it was dark. It was definitely had a heavy presence to it, for sure. Yeah, I didn't like it. I took a video of it. Not that there's much to see because it's so dark. It's kind of dark, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, several prisoners tried to escape, and 26 of them were successful in doing so. Jay Lewis was the first prisoner to escape in 1878. The most famous escape attempt to happen was in October 1887 when seven Mexican prisoners thought they could make it out unharmed. Superintendent Thomas Gates was walking towards the Sally Port when Lopez approached him and started walking with him. When Gate reached the Sally Port, two more prisoners, Vasquez and Bustamante, were standing there waiting for him. They ordered Gates to escort them to the east bank of the Hilia River or die. Four other prisoners joined him, Puebla, Villa, Baca, and Padilla. They ordered the guard to open the iron gates, and with Mr. Gates in tow, the seven men made it outside the prison walls. Villa, Padilla, and Baca left the group and ran to the superintendent's house to try and get some weapons. They broke into a desk where they found a revolver. In the meantime, Assistant Superintendent Johnny Behan, from Tombstone fame, this is what he did after Tombstone, uh, he ran and closed the sally port, fearing there would be a massive outbreak. Which I could see that happening. Yeah, gates are open, let's go. Uh Well, Baca took off running and was stopped by a guard. Villa also tried to run but was shot by one of the guards. Superintendent Gates then ordered guard Benjamin Franklin Hartley. Gotta like that. Not the Benjamin Franklin. No. (laughs) Uh, Ordered uh, Hartley to open fire on the men. Pueblo was still holding on to Gates, but once Hartley had a clear shot, he sent a bullet through Puebla's leg. Puebla then drove a knife into Gates' right shoulder. Secretary Rule then ran out and hit Puebla over the head with his revolver but he still held on to Gates. Rule then aimed his pistol at Lopez, who now had the stolen pistol. Lopez had his sight set on Rule as well. Rule turned and began to run. Lopez chased after him, and this gave Hartley a clear shot on Lopez. He was hit and laying on the ground. When he tried to get up, Hartley and Rule each shot him again. Hartley then turned his attention to Gates, where he saw Bustamante take a swing at Gates with a sharp butcher knife. Hartley wasted no time firing at Bustamante. He then turned his weapon on Vasquez, and he too went down like Bustamante. Puebla, who had been shot earlier, was still holding on to Gates. He took a butcher knife to Gates and drove it deep into the back of his neck. He then proceeded to twist the knife, causing more damage. He then used Gates' body as a shield and started walking backwards, all while the knife was still in his neck. It's horrible to think about. Uh Uh-huh. Agonizing. 
Well, Barney Riggs, a prisoner who was serving a life sentence, came to Gates' rescue. Gates yelled to Riggs, telling him to pick up the pistol and shoot Puebla. I mean, that's pretty desperate to say, hey, lifetime prisoner, pick up that pistol and save my ass. Which he probably has a life sentence because he probably killed somebody to Uh get in there. Well, seeing what was going on, Puebla took the knife out of Gates' neck and began to stab him. Riggs took aim and shot Puebla in the chest, knocking him backwards, giving Hartley a clear shot. He fired and hit Puebla in the back, killing him. In all, Bustamante, age 29, who was serving a nine-year sentence for larceny, was killed. Labrado Puebla, age 45, who was serving a 30-year sentence for robbery, was killed. Vasquez, age 30, also serving a 30-year sentence for helping Puebla in the same robbery, was killed. Lopez was serving a 15-year sentence for murder and was killed. Albion Villa had only five months left on his sentence when he participated in the jailbreak, and he recovered from his wounds. Kind of dumb of him to take part of that, I feel like. (laughs) Yeah. Baca and Padilla are the only two that escaped without injuries. As for Superintendent Gates, he never fully recovered from his injuries and was forced to resign. The pain was eventually too much for him, and he committed suicide. This was not the only break the prison had, but was one of the most eventful and talked about. Yuma Prison was also known to house some of the worst criminals of the time and also some very well-known criminals. Finn Clayton, number 463, entered the prison on October 7, 1887, serving a 10-year charge for cattle rustling. He is the brother of the notorious Clanton McLowry outlaws who were part of the OK Corral shootout in Tombstone. Finn was not there during the shootout, but was still arrested for it and eventually let go when they were able to prove he was not there. When he was sent to Yuma, he served only one year and five months of his 10-year sentence after he was pardoned when it was discovered the main witness lied to collect the $250 reward, which would be just shy of $8,000 today. Mm-hmm. Can't lie about that, guys. Nope. <laughs> well, another prisoner to spend time here was Fred Glover. Fred Glover the lover? The lover. <laughs> Fred Glover the lover. We talked about him in episode 47 back in April of this year. Yeah, so if you want to know what his crime was, go back a bit and take a listen to it. He actually entered the prison on June 30th, 1885, and was given the number 314. Another famous outlaw was Frank Leslie, otherwise known as Buckskin Frank. He came to Tombstone in 1880 and was working as a bartender in the Oriental Saloon. Frank had a very unique way of carrying a sidearm. Rather than a typical leather holster, he wore his pistol in a hinged silver frame that was attached to his belt. The frame snugly wrapped around the cylinder with the end of the barrel exposed. This allowed him to shoot from the hip. He would just have to reach down, cock the hammer, turn the pistol towards the victim, and fire. And there's no way he's going to shoot himself doing that, right? No, not at all. Frank started spending time with May Killeen, the wife of local barber named Mike. The two of them were separated, but her husband was a jealous man and kept an eye on her at all times. On June 22, 1880, her husband went looking for her at the hotel she was staying at. When he was unable to find her, he went to the second-floor balcony of the hotel, and he spotted her walking down the street, arm-in-arm, with Buckskin Frank Leslie. Mike started yelling at the two and threatening him. 
Frank wasted no time and shot Mike, who was still standing on the balcony. I just picture him, like, falling off the balcony. Uh, I was just thinking of that totally old Western shootout. Yeah. You smile when you call me that. Uh, the killing was ruled self-defense, and Frank was free to go. One week later, Frank and May were married. His reign of terror and tombstone did not end there. On November 14th, 1882, Frank got into an argument with Billy Claiborne. Billy was demanding that Frank call him Billy the Kid, but Frank wanted nothing to do with him, and this upset Billy even more. He threatened to get a gun and kill Frank. Later that night, Billy returned with a Winchester, and Frank was ready for him. Frank stepped outside the Oriental Saloon to meet Billy in the streets. Just to talk, right? Yep. Yep. Billy fired a shot at him and missed. Frank returned fire, hitting him several times, killing him. No legal action was taken as it was ruled self-defense again. Yeah, the one from the balcony I thought was interesting being self-defense. Yeah. From the balcony. Because nowadays you're supposed to turn and run type of thing. Like, no, the guy threatened to kill me from up there on a balcony. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I shot him. <laughs> well, some sources say he had a gun. Some didn't say right. he had a gun. So it's like if he's up in a balcony with a gun, yeah. it's kind of in my mind like a sniper. So yeah, well, that is definitely. a little scary. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, a rumor was spread throughout Tombstone that Frank killed the famous outlaw, Johnny Ringo. Yeah. And there's quite a bit that we'd found on uh, YouTube and other stories about how that went about. So that'd be something if you're interested in, take a look at that. Yeah. Because Ringo's death was ruled a suicide. But Frank used this rumor to his advantage and walked around town like he owned the place. He divorced his wife, May, and started spending time at the Birdcage Theater. His new lover was Molly Bradshaw, a blonde dance hall girl that also worked in a crib in the red light district. Molly had a pimp who threatened to kill Frank when he moved in with Molly. He moved into Molly's crib. These are tiny. <laughs> like, really? You just, it's like the prisoners. They moved into a walk-in closet. Yeah. Well, he didn't have to pay rent there, I'm sure. So. <laughs> yeah, that's why the pimp was pissed. <laughs> well, one day, the pimp was found dead next to an old mine dump, and Frank denied having anything to do with it. The town folk didn't really care about the pimp, and no investigation was done into the crime. Uh, we were talking about it a bit ago, that the pimps were looked down upon as lower and lesser than the, the gals that were working for him. Yeah. So... Nobody cared. Yep. <laughs> well, Frank was drinking more and more now and was rarely seen sober. Molly wanted to help Frank sober up, so she purchased a small ranch outside of town and the two of them moved in there. She also hired a farmhand, Jimmy Neal. Yeah, Frank didn't want to work the farm, um, but she felt like getting him out of town might help him stop drinking. Right. Yep. Well, one day Frank came back from Tombstone drunk and started to argue with Molly. Sounds like her plan didn't work. Mm -hmm. He then slapped her around, and when she tried to defend herself, he pulled a pistol and shot her, killing her. Jimmy heard the gunshot and came in to see what happened. When he walked into the house, Frank shot him three times. Frank, thinking that Jimmy was dead, carried his body to an abandoned shed. Jimmy woke up later that night and was actually able to crawl to a nearby ranch that belonged to Cy Bryant. I can't imagine with three gunshot wounds crawling somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Across the desert ground. Yeah. You're not known. The cactus, scorpions, mm-hmm. snakes, all yep. that kind of shit. And this is a ranch, so it isn't like going to your next door neighbor's house. Yeah, exactly. You know? 
Osai loaded Jimmy into the wagon and rushed him into Tombstone for help. Jimmy told the sheriff everything he had seen, and a posse of men was formed to arrest Frank. When the men approached Frank's property, Frank came out to greet them. Unaware that Jimmy was still alive, he began telling the deputy and his men that Jimmy went on a rampage last night and shot Molly, and then he killed Jimmy. Kind of a good plan, I guess, to cover things up. Well, when they asked where the bodies were, he told them Molly was at the ranch and Jimmy was in the old shed. The men told Frank they would have to arrest Frank, and he agreed, and he went with them without protest. When Frank arrived at the jail, he was shocked to see Jimmy lying on a cot next to the sheriff's office. Oh, shit. I'm sure he was freaking out. Mm. In 1890, Frank was sentenced to life imprisonment at Yuma. Frank was released from Yuma in 1907 after several tombstone citizens signed a lengthy petition. He was given back his pistol and famous gun belt and left town. So 17 years on his sentence, roughly. Yeah. There you have it. Just killing a woman. She was a working gal. Who cares? And that other guy was just a farmhand. It's fine. 17 <laughs> years is enough. Well, it's sad, too. Like, the one thing I was reading about this was saying that Jimmy kind of idolized Frank. Oh, looked so up So then to him. he gets shot by, like, his hero. I'm like, oh, poor kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Changed his mind real fast. Yeah. Well, the women in the prison led just as colorful lives as men in the prison did. May Woodman arrived at the prison in 1883 after she was sentenced to five years for manslaughter. May and Billy Kinsman were friends and unfortunate victims of a practical joke. Someone placed an announcement in the Tombstone newspaper stating that Billy intended to marry May Woodman. When Billy read this, he decided to place an announcement of his own. He stated that he had no intention of joining hands in matrimony with May. When May read this, she became angry and set out to get Billy. Maybe she really wanted to be married. Maybe she posted this. <laughs> that one of the stories, it was that they thought she had done it. And then it was like that Billy's friends did it to play a joke on him. So it was never mm-hmm. like proven who actually did the first announcement. <laughs> right. Well, she was mad, and she found Billy out front of the Oriental Saloon, shot, and killed him. May served 10 months and was pardoned by the governor on a conditional pardon. The condition was to leave the territory and to never return. May got on the first train to California and was never seen again. (laughs) Maria Marino was one of the two youngest female prisoners. She entered the prison in October 1896 at the age of 16. She was convicted of manslaughter and received a sentence of one year and one month for killing her 15-year-old brother. She kills her own brother. Mm -hmm. Maria was said to have had an ungovernable temper. She and her brother got into an argument at the dance hall. Maria left and came back with a shotgun, shooting her brother in front of everyone there. She only served 11 months. Wow. Elena Estrada was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to seven years. Hers was a crime of passion when she caught her boyfriend with another woman. Elena was so upset by this that she stabbed him to death. The story continues on that she cut his heart out and shoved it in his face. (laughs) During her time in prison, she spent five days in the snake den for fighting. She was paroled in November of 1904 for good behavior, 
but it is thought that she was let out because she was the only female prisoner at the time. Yeah, they didn't want to deal with her. <laughs> or have her cut somebody else's heart out. We were talking about that. It's like, your heart is behind a rib cage. You can't just cut this heart yeah. out and slap <laughs> it in his face. Yeah. A little ridiculous, but. It makes for a good story. Yes. Romantic, isn't it? <laughs> Housing women was difficult for the prison, and this was shown when Manuela Fimbre was sentenced for being an accessory to murder. While imprisoned, she gave birth to a baby. Hmm. The prison did not know what to do with the baby, so they just let her keep it in prison with her. She was eventually pardoned out of concern for her child. It said the guards were happy for her to leave, but they were sad the baby left. <laughs> that was their mascot. Yeah. <laughs> we'll raise him, right? <laughs> yeah, this is a good environment for him, for sure. <laughs> well, the most famous woman and possibly the most complicated woman to house was Pearl Hart. On May 29, 1899, Pearl and her lover, Joe Boot, robbed a stagecoach that was making its way to Globe, Arizona. They made off with 400 bucks and a pistol belonging to the driver. Which is just over $15,000 today. Well, five days later, a posse of men caught up with them. Joe meekly surrendered, but Pearl fought like a cornered wildcat. Pearl was a beautiful woman, and while she was awaiting trial, she was able to seduce a guard into letting her escape. She didn't get far and was recaptured. During the trial, Pearl dressed in her finest outfit told the jury a sob story that she robbed the stagecoach to get enough money to visit her sick mother back east. She turned the flirting up with the all-male jury and even lifted her dress, showing them her ankle. Ooh, how risque of her. Mm -hmm. The jury found her not guilty because of the ankle, (laughs) but Judge Fletcher Down was outraged by this. He ordered her to be tried again, but this time for stealing the driver's pistol. Well, the flirting must not have worked for the jury this time because Pearl was sentenced to five years in prison. Her lover, Joe, on the other hand, was sentenced to 30 years. I'm sure it was his idea. And we were talking about this earlier when we were uh, saying how he got 30 years for robbery. But then you look at the women that killed their boyfriends and they got seven years for murder yeah 13 months for manslaughter yeah it's like that doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. well in november 1899 she entered the prison and was given the number 1559 the newspapers wrote exaggerated stories about pearl and by the time she arrived in prison she was famous for her beauty and charm pearl used this to her advantage and was able to convince the guards and inmates to do favors for her. When Pearl would join the men for mealtimes, fights amongst the men would break out over her. At one point, a rumor was spread that Pearl was pregnant. Having Pearl locked up was proving to be difficult and dangerous. After three years, she was pardoned by the governor. As for her lover, Joe Boot, well, he only served one year and three months. However, he left under different circumstances. On February 6, 1901, he successfully escaped the prison. He's out of here. Mm-hmm. Some it, of that shit. <laughs> it was suspected that he went to Mexico. 
When Pearl left, she went back east where she was still a famous female stagecoach robber and tried her hand at acting, but that did not work out for her. Nope. Sorry, lady. You're still a outlaw robber. <laughs> well, some other interesting folks who spent time in the prison are not people you would think would go to jail necessarily. These would be the Mormons. In 1862, the Moral Anna Bigamy Act was passed. The act specifically outlawed a man marrying a second wife and was aimed directly at the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons. In the mid-1880s, nine Mormon leaders were convicted under the law and sent to the Yuma Territorial Prison. These men posed an issue for the superintendent. They were not bad men like the rest of them locked up, and therefore they were given more privileges. But they're also not the ones that are going to defend themselves against murders and rapists yeah. and all that. Yeah, it would be difficult to lock somebody like that up with other criminals that are, you know, murderers and things like that. Mm. Because those guys don't care. Where these guys are like, I got put in jail for having two wives, you yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> and marrying a 12-year-old daughter. As a wife. <laughs> anyway, the prison museum has a great touchscreen display there that talks about each man that was locked up and how long they were there. It's a pretty cool interactive deal. Yeah. And it's air conditioned inside there. It is. It's nice. <laughs> yeah. so by and they have electricity. They do. And flushing yeah. toilets. Sorry. Flushing toilets. <laughs> by 1890, the church had abolished polygamy and there were no more men arrested and sent to the Yuma prison for this crime. By 1907, the prison was overcrowded, and a new prison was being built in Florence. In 1909, after 33 years, the prison was closed down, and all the inmates were transferred 200 miles east of Florence, just outside of Phoenix. The prison became property of the city, and interestingly, the following year, the prison was used for the Yuma High School, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they used that until 1914. And the school mascot was the Crims. Right. And sometimes my mind quickly reads things. And at first I thought it said the crimes. And I was like, that is awesome. <laughs> Isn't their mascot still the cr the Crims? I think so. <laughs> yeah, I believe so. Well, the superintendent's home was converted into the county hospital for a short time until it was destroyed in 1923. That year, the Southern Pacific Railroad moved its tracks from Madison Avenue to their present site and in doing so, destroyed a third of the old prison. While we were there, the train passed through a couple times. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, you could throw a rock at the train. It's that yep, close. Right down the hill. Yeah. In the 1930s and 1940s, the town folk worked diligently to preserve what was left of the prison and convert it into a museum. I'm really glad that they did. Mm -hmm. It's fun. That's about the only reason to go to Yuma, though. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not on the way to or from anything. No. Unless you're in Mexico coming out. But even, I don't think there's anything right there in Mexico that you'd typically be heading in or out of. Yeah, I don't think so either. Well, in 1961, the Arizona State Programs began operating the prison as a state historic park. So you guys can all go visit it now. <laughs> yep, yep. It's just a couple bucks to get in. It wasn't much. Yeah, and it's worth it. It's, I mean, like you said, there's really not a reason to go to Yuma. Yeah. But if you are by that area, it is worth that detour. Or if you're like us and have some time and like this stuff, 
for sure go stop and see this. It's cool. Yeah, we just mapped it out to make it part of the trip, and then we backtracked to head back on out towards Tombstone after mm-hmm. the fact. But Yeah, and there's lots of places to stay in Yuma. I felt like there was even a casino there in one of the hotels. Oh, yeah. But I could be wrong. The one hotel we stayed in was a little scary, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, they have... I'd been at a hotel there before, and outside their pool area, they had just wild lemon and lime trees growing outside there. Mm-hmm. Kind of cool stuff yeah. that grows out there. But Well, a visit to the prison would not be complete without a visit to the prison cemetery. No, it would not. <laughs> just below the parking lot and a short walk down the hill is where the prison's permanent residents reside. At least 102 prisoners were laid to rest here. Cause of death for the prisoners varied from natural causes, old age, murder, suicide, snake bites, and consumption, now known as tuberculosis. (laughs) The first death in the territorial prison was Richard Russell, number 120, who entered the prison on October 14, 1882, and passed away on November 1st, 1882, just a couple weeks after being incarcerated. Yeah, didn't even survive a whole month there. No. Well, while doing my research for this, I came across a lot of stories about the men and women locked up in the prison, as well as the men that are buried in the cemetery. And if we talked about them all today, this would be easily a five-hour episode. So if you're interested in knowing more about this, please check out our Patreon for bonus content, as we are going to tell you more stories about them there. And there'll be a link in the show notes for you guys. Absolutely. All right, folks. Well, I think that sums up what drove us to the infamous Yuma prison. Luckily, our sentence was short and we were back on the road the same day. (laughs) You like that? See, I did the dad joke for you. Oh, I have a good one, though. You've got another one for us, huh? I do. All right. What did you uh, come up with here? Okay, so Kansas, Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas are all about to outlaw interstate begging. These four states all are against the Oklahoma panhandle. Because they all touch the Oklahoma panhandle. (laughs) Okay, take that joke out. (laughs) I got a backup joke for you. Oh, good. This one's really good. <laughs> I've, okay. heard, I've heard you say that before, too. Some guy on the Oregon Trail makes a joke at the expense of Terrence. You know, an outlaw. You know what happened to him? Uh, no, I, d- I have no fucking clue. He died of dysentery. <laughs> he was dysentery. <laughs> Terrence. Ter- um. I thought that was a good one. <laughs> you always think they're good ones. Dysentery. Well, we've had some people agree. Not a lot, but a few people have agreed. <laughs> all right, then. Well, thank you all for joining us once again. Uh, if you want to stay up to date with us, we're most active on the Instagram. At Rebel at Large. Uh, we post photos of our adventures on our website. RebelAtLarge.com. Well, you'll find links to our Patreon, merch store, email, and other social deals. Yeah, most of that's in the show notes as well. Well, we'll talk to y'all here in a couple of weeks. Safe travels. We'll see y'all down the road.
Can you pause it for a second? Yep. He is the brother of the notorious Clinton McCallery outlet. McLowry. Housing women was difficult for the prison, and this was shown when Manuela Fimbre. Housing women was difficult for the prison, and this was shown when Manuela Fimbre, right? Mm-hmm. Let me start that over. You smile when you call me that.